Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back to the show. There are many American philosophers of the 19th century, and we might think of, say, William James, you know, one of the founding voices of psychology and Harvard professor. And there's also Charlotte Perkins Gilman, a social reformer and a eugenicist. And uh, one of my favorites is John Dewey, co-founder of the New School and created the idea of reflective thinking. Of course, there are many more I could mention as well, some of which we've already covered in the show, but if we measure the reach of a philosophical idea by the number of books sold, one thinker would outsell James, Dewey, and Gilman. And if we measure the reach of a philosophical idea, one thinker would have global appeal. And yet most Americans have probably never read his most popular book or even know his name. If you're a student of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, you'll know who I'm talking about. It's Henry George. He wrote the best-selling Progress and Poverty, and his big idea was the single tax idea based on land value. Now, to be fair, Henry George wasn't the first to come up with the idea of a value tax or a land value tax. He mentions the Romans in his book, that they had a land tax, and the idea has been doing the rounds well before the 19th century. However, the reason why George's 1881 publication of Progress and Poverty became such a hit is because industrial capitalism had transformed the world. The migration of people from farms to cities transformed where and how we live. The factory system transformed the way we work. Industries like railroads and telegraphy changed the way that markets operated, including the real estate market. George proposed a tax system that would bring equity to the industrialized world and restore democracy while preserving capitalism. It's a utopian promise. And it's mighty confusing because George was not a socialist, yet he called his plan land nationalization. And he also advocated for the working class, and he even referred to it as a class conflict. So he wasn't a socialist, right? Is he a liberal? Is he a progressive? My guest today is Dr. Christopher William England, who has written an intellectual biography on George, Georgism, and the way he fits into the genealogy of liberal thinkers. Chris is a lecturer at Georgetown University, and the name of his book is Land and Liberty, Henry George and the Crafting of Modern Liberalism. Now, I have a million questions I could ask Chris on this topic, not least because I think George has an incredible relevance for us today. If you're a millennial or a Gen Zer, or simply an academic that has been on precarious contracts forever, if you're any of those, it's likely that housing has become unaffordable. 
Well, George offers us answers how we might fix the property market, although many of those ideas that he has are untested and he has plenty of critics. For example, if you are a baby boomer or you own multiple properties, the idea of a tax upon the land you own will make you see red. So it's divisive, for sure, but it's certainly worth talking about. Welcome to the show, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I think this uh, this book couldn't come at a better time. Not only are we rethinking political philosophies at the moment, but it seems like with the housing crisis around the world, or at least the Western world, Henry George is going to be more important than ever. So I thought I would start off with just who is Henry George? And what I really mean here is, can you give us a little bit of the backstory before we turn to his economic ideas? Yeah, so Henry George comes from a, a pretty modest upbringing. Uh, he is from uh, a working class family in Philadelphia. Uh, he leaves school quite early at the age of 14. Uh, sometimes this has been uh, interpreted as him being an anti-intellectual, but um, according to some accounts, he was actually very sheltered and he, his doctor told him he needed to go out into the world or he was going to get sick. Either way, uh, he ends up becoming a sailor, uh, travels around the world, goes to India and Australia, uh, spends, a time, spends a, some time hopping about um, as an artisan, um, mostly working in the printing trade. Eventually, uh, he heads out west uh, in hopes of, uh, you know, making it big. Uh, he struggles for a while in San Francisco in the printing trade, uh, also for a while in Victoria, uh, British Columbia. Uh, ultimately, he breaks into uh, journalism in San Francisco. And at the time, he becomes preoccupied with this question of, you know, um, San Francisco is a booming city. It's beginning to grow and develop. And during this period, many people imagine that, uh, you know, they're, they're boosters who think that this development is going to make everyone rich. And uh, George thinks that that isn't happening. And he famously uh, speculates that when the Transcontinental Railroad is completed, uh, the majority of San Francisco San Franciscans will be poorer than they were before, and that it will only create more inequality. And so he struggles with answering why this is, and he ultimately comes to the conclusion that it's because of rising rents, rising land values. He argues that land is finite, and that um, as cities develop, there's more demand for that finite land, and therefore more and more wealth is skewed towards those who already own property. So that's the, the crux of his idea. It becomes a, the single tax idea, which I know we're going to talk a lot more about, and because that's the thing that your book grapples with most. But can you give us a description of how Georgism aimed to solve the problems of industrial capitalism? Yeah. So uh George is, you know, he seems in a lot of ways idiosyncratic to us today because he's halfway between a libertarian and a Marxist, um, <laughs> or maybe a little bit of both. You know, he believes in the total socialization of uh, land, natural resources, uh, certain types of natural monopolies that are predicated on uh, the ownership of finite resources. Um, these can include um, communications and tel uh, transportation monopolies like railroads and um, telegraphs. On the other hand, he um, broadly believes that the market should be able to operate um, on its own uh, without much government intervention. Uh, so he draws a hard line between what he sees as monopolistic natural resources and the rest of the market. And his solution uh, to socializing land, which is, you know, the, the, the crux of his argument is a tax. 
and according to classical economics, as you impose taxes on on land, the value of the land, uh, the value of that land will decrease. Uh, and so his idea is to effectively fully socialize land by taxing it at, at its full rental rate. Um, and so this means um, that if you were to be buying a townhouse in um, in Baltimore and one in uh, New York City, they would cost the same amount uh, because the, the difference would be paid in rent. Um, the, the, the advantages to uh, purchasing a house in New York would be sort of uh, dissipated by by that tax. Uh, and so this is a tax not just on agricultural land, as a lot of people had, had thought of it, but a tax on sort of scarce urban space and finite resources. And Chris, this is the only tax then, right? So the single tax would replace other forms of tax. And it, that would be, you know, a sizable tax on land rents, right? Yeah, so the, the idea that this is, is that this would be a large and progressively growing uh, tax that would fund a, 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 an expansive welfare state. The, the the singleness of it is maybe not quite as uh, important a point, I think, as some people have believed. Um, George does talk about uh, potentially some other taxes, um, but he uh, a, a number of Georgists are interested in inheritance taxes as well. But in general, the idea is that land is special. And so the the balance of taxation should rest on that. And maybe, you know, maybe the state can collect revenue uh, elsewhere, but not necessarily. The, the uh, Georgists sort of vary in the degree to which they think that this should be the single tax, but they do believe in the full taxation of land values. So this is clearly going to favor one group of society over another group, and that's the the tenants and the laborers, because there's no tax suggested here from George. There's no tax on labor. That's that's uh, done away with. Although, of course, at the time there wasn't a, an income tax. Um, so that that's interesting, too. I think you brought up the question about where George fits in with the sort of people of his time. Um, and one of the things that becomes clear in your book is that George wasn't really as radical as as we might think, he's not a socialist, despite calling his program land nationalization and his clear support for labor. Um, and I suppose even his views on class conflict, he had a lot of bourgeois friends and you situate his thought as part of the liberal tradition. And can you, I, I really want you to expand on this because as you say, he's not a progressive either. So if he's not progressive, he's not socialist and he's part of this liberal tradition, how does he fit in? It seems quite a complicated uh, place for him to 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 situate himself. Yeah, uh, that that's a good question. So you know, I think we we oftentimes have this conception of classical liberalism as being sort of tantamount to modern day libertarianism, uh, as being you know gung ho about the free market. I think a lot of uh, historians of economic thought have pushed back on that to argue that people like Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill. Uh, see a lot of inequities in the market, and they're concerned about creating a competitive marketplace. And sometimes that involves government intervention. And uh, George is part of that tradition. He idealizes a you know free competitive market, um, but he thinks that certain institutions like landed property, uh, railroad monopoly, are standing in the way of that. Uh, and it, he he fits quite neatly into that uh, that tradition. Uh, which in some ways makes him out of place during this period, as you have um, a lot of, uh, especially academic 
progressives who are pushing back against classical liberalism, looking to German political economy, um, or, you know, generally, you know, very optimistic about state power and what, what it can achieve in society. Uh, George is instead sort of uh, treading a middle ground. Uh, but in that way, you know, I argue that in a lot, a lot of ways he anticipates modern liberalism, uh, which becomes a little, you know, somewhat disenchanted uh, with uh, the, you know, progressive idealism uh, uh, or progressive optimism about the state after World War I um, and begins to move towards civil liberties um, and sort of a more um, balanced vision of the relationship between state and society. Now, I'm speaking to you today from Ireland, and I love that your book starts with Michael Davitt and the Irish Land League, which, of course, in your book, you, you, you mentioned that it, it drew inspiration from Henry George. What's the international reach of Georgism in Ireland, in the United States, and then beyond that, too? Yeah, it, it, it's quite broad. Um, and I argue that that's because these issues of, uh, you know, urban rents and resource scarcity are ubiquitous. Uh, so George finds his first audience in Ireland. Uh, he he finds a, a very uh, avid audience throughout um, Great Britain. Um, uh, concentrated land ownership is a major issue in England and Scotland. And the Georgist movement there plays an important role in creating um, this sort of uh, a battle over the people's budget, which is a huge constitutional crisis that um, sort of reshapes um, English government in a lot of ways. Uh, it also has influence in Germany, where a lot of municipalities establish land value taxation. Um, there, um, Australia and New Zealand implement land value taxation. Um, also, uh, China. Um, Sun Yat-sen in China becomes uh, a hero to many Georgists. Uh, he's you know, seen as the founder of modern China, the uh, principal sort of ideological antagonist to the to the emperor, uh, and he he is drawn to Georgism. I think because you know Georgism offers a a, a view of liberalism that's more egalitarian, um, and so it places China potentially within this framework of liberal modernization that he wants to see uh, it heading towards. Uh, it, its reach is, is large, and I think I've, I think there's probably a lot more than I even got to here. Um, there, you know, I've, there's some indication that, well, you know, like Holland, for example, establishes a system of uh, ground rent um, around this time, which sounds like it's rooted in Henry George, but I was never able to establish any sort of direct connection. But yeah, I think there's a, a large and extensive uh, influence which in some ways, you know, ironically means that he is, you know, as an American, you know, this nation that we see is, you know, quintessentially conservative in a lot of ways, you know, positing a, um, you know, a sort of quasi-utopian socialist vision that is, you know, captivating the world. It's not, not typically how we see <laughs> America's place in the world, uh, which is part of irony. Well, I mean, we, I mean, I think most people, if you ask them who Henry George was, they wouldn't know. And and I yeah. want to talk a little bit about that <laughs> later. But I also wanted to turn to that moment of epiphany that he has, because you do a great job in your book of identifying that moment. He's wandering or strolling around Oakland, uh, thinking about uh, the city and about the property in the Bay Area. And, you know, not a lot has changed. I mean, the Bay Area... <laughs> 
looking for property there. It's like he finding hen's teeth, uh, you know, so yeah. not a lot has changed. <laughs> and you make this really compelling case in your book that brings the past and the present into uh, relief here in some ways, because you say that the Gilded Age was really a, a period that was about land. And we've had so many books written about this period that talk about the Gilded Age was about order, or the Gilded Age was about rebirth, or the Gilded Age was about the Nouveau Riche. And you say in, in your book, the Gilded Age was about land. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to expand on that. Yeah, that, that's a good question. And, you know, I, I, I wouldn't push that too far. I'm giving, you know, their view and sort of showing where this comes from. I think there's a lot happening in the Gilded Age. I, I wouldn't want to reduce it. Uh, but yeah, there, there are a lot of ways in which land is essential to the political economy of the period. Uh, you know, most of the monopolies in the period uh, are rooted in you know natural resources, steel, um, oil. Um, and uh, a lot of times this is possible precisely because someone like Carnegie comes along and he buys up, you know, the, the Wasabi Mountain Range. And so... It's, it's the fact that uh, resources are rooted in a particular location. Um, they are exclusive and finite uh, that allows these monopolies to develop. Uh, the same is also largely true, I think, for uh, railroads and um, telegraphs, because the things that thing that makes those networks so difficult to create is the networks of continue to contiguous land that allow uh, for you to draw lines between major metropolitan areas. Uh, those are very difficult to establish. Uh, they usually involve state intervention at some point. Uh, but once that intervention has been, um, once that assistance has been provided, there's no way to really cobble that together again. Uh, so, you know, a great example is telegraphy, uh, where, you know, Western Union doesn't have the best patents for telegraphs, but what the, uh, Sibley does is he sort of pioneers the technique of um, negotiating with railroads for exclusive access to rights of way. Um, so in a lot of ways, land monopoly is the more sort of essential element to establishing um, this sort of corporate power and the power of the telegraph is gigantic uh, than is, you know, legal uh, technological monopoly rooted, rooted in patents. I know you don't want to reduce it because you're a good historian, but I have to say, <laughs> it's a you. pretty compelling that. case. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if you think about migration in the Gilded Age, we're talking about land too, people moving off land and, and into places like cities. And, and that's another thing that I really wanted to talk to you about after reading the book was that George really offers us a lot for contemporary economics of a city. Uh, the, the, you know, like the land nationalization idea that he has speaks to the value of our cities. And, and in a way, the the progress part of poverty and progress or progress and poverty is about our cities. It's about the, the promise of population density. And it repeats th that promise through democracy as a balance to the capitalist system of, uh, of private ownership. So I'm just wondering if you could say something about the way George viewed our cities, not as these cesspools of like, you know, vice and crime and and, and all the things that we know that are wrong with cities, you know, poor sanitation, but really is the centers for innovation and for change and for and, and, and for new ideas. Yeah, uh, that, that's a good point. And in some ways, it's surprising because, you know, the anti-urban undertones of this period are 
enormous. It's, cities are associated with corruption. Uh, they're associated with lots and lots of poop and sanitation issues. <laughs> right. Uh, Straight, yeah. they, they, they generally seem like pretty unseemly places to live. Uh, but George and many of his followers are drawn to that uh, as a place of socialization. Um, they, you know, George talks about cities as places where the greatest minds assemble, uh, where there are opportunities for specialization. Uh, where um, there are opportunities to for retail, you know, where you can have development of a consumer society, where it's easier to access consumers and easier to access goods. Um, the, 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 there is an economic component to the cities in terms of economies of scale and agglomeration that's important to creating the, the value of this land. But he looks a little bit deeper and says that there's a social, cultural, and educational uh, component too. Uh, and so Georges often looked to cities as, you know, the center of democracy. Uh, famously, Frederick Howe, Howe calls um, cities the, the hope of democracy. Uh, and um, you have his, George's followers like Tom Johnson in Cleveland establishing these very sort of democratic regimes where, you know, Tom Johnson opens up the park so people can go out and commune on them rather than just look at them from a distance. He brings out his big tent and holds tent meetings and has, you know, uh, allows his constituents to just ask questions of him directly. Um, and yeah, so the, the, there's a faith, a belief in sort of a higher social value in cities that sort of underlies a lot of these ideas. You brought up Tom Johnson. I think we, 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 this is a good opportunity for us to delve a little bit more into that because this is, we've talked a lot about the idea of Georgism. And I don't want to depart from that because I think there's still more to unpick. But um, seeing as we're talking about Tom Johnson, he's the mayor of Cleveland. He's not originally the mayor of Cleveland, but tell us a little bit about his background and a little bit then about the land value tax, which is Georgism in action in an American city. Tom Johnson is, you know, he he's an orphan uh, initially. Uh, he comes from uh, a family of uh, um, Southerners who were ruined by the Civil War. Uh, he he moves north. He uh, he eventually becomes a uh, attraction line owner. Uh, he gets into business. He runs the very streetcars that George is uh, railing against. And then at some point, um, you know, um, someone on the bus says, hey, why don't you read this uh, Henry George uh, book, Social Problems? And it sort of coaxed into doing it. And so he reads it um, and he he finds the, the issues in there unanswerable. Um, and he even hires his lawyers to read Progress and Poverty and try to you know uh, identify the holes in it, which they're unable to do. Uh, and, you know, I think that this is this is in part a reflection of the way in which George, as a liberal, is speaking to the values of uh, the middle class, right? Um, if if you weren't coming in with those values, you, you might have objections, but he's speaking directly to, uh, to people like Tom Johnson, to middle class Americans, um, and Johnson's unable to answer those charges. So he eventually goes to George, he becomes um, an acolyte. He helps organize one of his mayoral campaigns. And then he um, he himself goes into politics, first as a congressman and then as mayor of Cleveland. Uh, and as the mayor of Cleveland, he comes to be, um, uh, you know, he's immortalized by the muckraker Leakin Steffens as, you know, um, 
the best mayor of the best governed city in the country. Uh, he becomes a, an icon uh, to reformers, not only through the progressive era, but into the New Deal. Uh, he, he does this through uh, uh, some very splashy fights, <laughs> very, very dramatic fights with uh, streetcar lines and railroads. Um, and by assembling a, 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 a coterie of uh, very able lieutenants who work for him, and many of them go on to work in the Wilson administration. Uh, he becomes a model for a certain type of um, Georgist municipal official uh, that spreads throughout the country during this period. Um, and you have uh, a growing movement in cities, um, either to land value taxation or to imitate um, Johnson's programs uh, more broadly. But I argue that this um, plays an important role in the, um, the politics of the period insofar as it draws a lot of urban Republicans into the Democratic Party. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And how successful is it in Cleveland? I mean, he introduces the land value tax. Does it work? Well, um, so that, that, that's a good question. Um, uh, in general, uh, Cleveland is seen as an exemplar of municipal governance, you know, doubling the amount of roads and infrastructure that it has during his um, period in office. Uh, land value taxation um, is initially shot down by the, its uh, state governments interrupt uh, land value taxation uh, there. Um, after he leaves office, his supporters are able to get it through. Uh, there are people who've looked at um, 
and changes in taxation in places like New York City um, during this period uh, that emphasize land taxation have, and have argued that it promoted growth. Um, um, I, I know definitely the New York case, which um, New York is under a Georgia's tax assessor for um, about a decade during this period. Um, there's a sense that those policies are promoting growth. Um, they're laying the foundation for the development of uh, a lot of the urban infrastructure during the period. There, the, I think in many cases, there's a sense that land values actually go up for a little while uh, because of the development that spurred, um, but then sometimes they tank um, as development um, sort of exceeds demand. A good example is Vancouver. Uh, Vancouver becomes sort of the, uh, the quintessential single-tax city of North America, and during the period, uh, there's a there's rapid growth, um, some of which is can be attributed to the fact that the coast in general is developing. But um, most observers think that land value taxation has contributed to it. And initially, land values continue to go up. But by the 1920s, um, uh, property owners are complaining that there's more housing than there are people to fill it. <laughs> and uh, there, there's no money to be made in land. So I think um, I think in the long run, uh, it probably did accomplish what uh, its supporters wanted. But that's not necessarily what everyone wanted. <laughs> A lot of people were upset to see their property lose value. Right, of course. And that's the that's the other side of this coin is that uh, obviously, as you say, it appeals to the middle class. It appeals to the laboring class. It appeals to those that don't own land. Um, the. The other the other thing that your book obviously grapples with is George himself and his foray into politics. He runs for mayor of New York City twice, uh, once against Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt finished third. Uh, George George pipped him to the post, getting second place, but he never wins. I mean, can you tell us about his own kind of his own place in politics? Because he's not a natural politician, is he? No, uh, you know he he is uh, he is seen as a great order. Um, you know, he's speaking around the city, um, you know, five or six times a day, drawing massive crowds. Uh, but I think more than, you know, ability or, you know, the, the question is inclination, right? He He's sort of drafted into the New York mayoral campaign by uh, labor unions um, who want him to sort of stop strike breaking uh, and move the city in a uh, more... Uh, liberal direction. But he sees a lot of risk in this because he understands that as mayor, he doesn't have the power to implement most of his ideas. And as the the head of this movement, if he, you know, if he's elected mayor and is unable to achieve his ends, he sort of discredits the movement. You know, Tammany famously tells him that um, you, you, uh, you won't be able to win, you'll just cause trouble, to which he delightfully replies, uh, good, I don't want to win, I just want to raise hell. <laughs> And so uh, to, to that effect, you know, he sort of serves his purpose. He does uh, manage to bring enormous national attention uh, to his campaign because New York is, you know, this is a period before when, you know, federal government is as important as it is. Uh, New York City is a, is a major political entity. Uh, people around the country are looking at the race. Uh, a lot of people around the country are imitating George in local elections. Uh, so he, he brings a lot of attention uh, to his cause um, and afterwards parlays it into a campaign for uh, the secret ballot, which is quite effective. 
So, okay. So George, obviously he, he's got his, his, the theory and the practice, right? And we've, we, so we've covered a little bit about his, his political runs. Um, I want to return to the theory because this is where your book uh, does such an amazing job of bringing the context into, uh, into clearer relief. So social Darwinism features prominently um, and, and Herbert Spencer, but also you introduce um, economic thinkers like Malthus and Ricardo. Um, social Darwinism kind of comes of age in parallel with, with Georgism, but they have really contrasting views on social hierarchies. Well, one, one has a view of social hierarchy. The other one, you know, Georgism doesn't believe in a, in a, in a hierarchy. So how does George combat the popular philosophies of, of people like Herbert Spencer who are advocating that social Darwinist view of society? Yeah, so I would argue that, you know, the, the entire sort of structure of progress and poverty as a book is in large ways a, a refutation of Herbert Spencer because Herbert Spencer, you know, in a lot of ways, his his ideas would resonate today. He's a sort of a technological futurist. Uh, he believes that society is moving in a uh, in a direction ever forward um, because of certain basic sort of laws of social evolution. Uh, he also believes in, in biological evolution and you know in the importance of human difference. Um, you know, racial difference is a very you know, important part of his ideas. And, and George, in, in Progress and Poverty, he tries to chart out a different perspective and show that, in fact, you know, civilizations have come and gone. Progress has often receded. Uh, and he argues that the essence of progress, what has created progress in the past, was social equality and political equality. Uh, and that if you allow the sort of Spencerian evolution, which emphasizes hierarchy uh, and social control to, to evolve, then you're, you're actually going to see social decline rather than social progress. It seems like it's it seems like he's an anti-modernist in that regard. Is that fair to say? You know, uh, people like Christopher Lash have uh, pointed to George as, you know, this sort of critic of progress. Um, it's not quite fair to say that he's a, a critic of progress because he it is all about his ideas are all about obtaining progress uh, but he he believes that it's not inevitable uh, and technology is not in and of itself going to pave the way he has this great line where he says you know yes technology has given us the steam engine it's also given us nitro nitroglycerin and dynamite uh, and this this is an observation that, I think most people were not conscious of for many years, but they, of course, become eminently conscious of it in World War One, World War Two and the Cold War. And so I, I think he's not anti-progress, but he has a healthy skepticism that technology absent good governance is going to pave the way to a brighter future. Yeah, that good governance element of it. I mean, there's a social gospel philosophy to Georgism here as well, which you do write about. Can you can you explain a little bit about how George saw salvation as something that was possible with a single tax? And perhaps, you know, maybe we need to include a little bit about religion here too, Catholicism in particular, who they were very threatened by Georgism. But I, that's two questions almost. One about the sort of social gospel of Georgism um, and, and then the other one about religion and Catholicism particularly. Yeah. Um, George, you know, he, he has an evangelical background. Um, he, he, he flirts with kind of 
spiritual spiritualism like Swedenborgianism, um, transcendentalist ideas. Uh, he comes back around to uh, um, to evangelicalism, but he maintains a certain kind of ecumenicalism. Um, he, like many transcendentalists, he sees all religions as sort of being formed around certain core essential truths. Um, uh, and he, you know, he, he he thinks that all of them are valid in different types of ways, which I think is important to his appeal, and, uh, as we'll get to. But, you know, also as an evangelical, he sees salvation as important. And Whereas many earlier generations of uh, religious reformers like abolitionists had looked to uh, religious and personal reform to create social reform, um, George reversed that narrative. So, you know, someone like William Lloyd Garrison, he didn't really believe in the federal government abolishing slavery. He believed in uh, people being converted to Christianity and moralism and voluntarily giving up slavery. George, on the other hand, um, sees that uh, an unequal society can create immorality. Uh, he himself has um, at one point almost robbed a man because he didn't have money to feed his child. Uh, and so he realizes that this society can make people immoral, uh, can lead people away from salvation. So George flips this historical equation and he argues that we need economic reform to create uh, a condition in which people can be moral and can obtain salvation, which, you know, sort of paves the way in some ways uh, for the ideas of someone like Walter Rauschenbusch, uh, who uh, would um, cite George as a major influence. Um, it's even been suggested that the term social gospel was originally intended to apply to progress and poverty um, as a, the book itself. Um, at the same time, you know, George is ecumenical. So he's making uh, appeals to Judaism, for example, that are very influential. He, he manages to uh, build a large um, Jewish constituency in part by appealing to um, the um, Mosaic Law of the Jubilee, which says that land needs to be redistributed every 50 years. And he argues that uh, the single tax is the way to modernize that sort of um, uh, that sort of practice. Uh, he's also citing um, Hinduism a lot. Uh, George visited India uh, as a young man, as a sailor, uh, and I think was always sort of influenced by that experience. And his 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 conflict with the Catholic Church is largely due to their expansive land holding around the world, right? Uh, well, you know, so that's a, that's a good question. Um, uh, George. Uh, has a large following of particularly Irish Catholics uh, who see land as central to the question of colonization and um, the development of independence. And, you know, he has a particularly sort of charismatic and popular um, priest on his side named Edward McGlynn. And, um, you know, McGlynn's able to sort of create this sort of Catholic social justice movement in New York that rallies a lot of people to Georgia's campaign in 1886. After that campaign, um, conservatives in um, the American Catholic Church sort of target McGlynn. Um, 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 he's called to Rome and he refuses to go. And so he's excommunicated. And there's this whole drawn out battle about that. And there's discussion within the Catholic Church as to whether or not 
the church hierarchy should explicitly denounce Georgism. Um, there, there's some indication that maybe they think that would only bring more attention to the issue. Ultimately, in Rerum Novarum, which is um, the sort of foundational doctrine in uh, Catholic economic thought, um, the church establishes that land and um, capital, land and property are sacrosanct. And so this is seen, and it very possibly is, as a way of covertly um, invalidating Georgia's ideas and saying that uh, Georgism is not part of Catholic doctrine. Uh, McGlynn and, and other uh, Georgists uh, very shyly uh, shift focus here, and this is partially when and maybe why they start to talk about a single tax. <laughs> they begin to say, we're, we're not actually you know, abolishing property and land, we're just taxing it. Um, and so this is a way to try to reconcile their ideas with uh, with the Catholic Church, and I think it's at least partially successful. And it's also part of a, a long drawn out story of how Georgists are, are pitching their ideas quite subtly, and they're 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 adept in their um, sort of political rhetoric and often covering their ground. Um, they're very uh, calculating. <laughs> well, they're they're p- political, I guess. They've got and you know, yeah. if if nothing else, the the Catholic Church is political. Um, yeah. Uh, but and obviously there's the you know the the emphasis of Georgism is around the cities. But I thought what your book did really well too was it um, it took the idea of uh, federal land leasing beyond just the sort of places where the railroads were going. Um, it, it took us to the rural parts. It took us west of the Mississippi, including Native American territory, and and the way Georgism left a mark on conservation policies. So tell us a little bit more about. Georgism out west, and Georgism particularly among Native American communities. Most Georgists realize that the best way to implement their ideas on the federal level is to, not as a tax, but to take land that the government already owns and begin leasing it. Uh, and so they they begin this push towards uh, federal leasing of resource land, which is of course the system that we have today. If you want oil on public land, you you lease it from the federal government. You don't purchase the land permanently. Uh, and they lay the foundation for that. They also see a, a possibility in um, American Indian policy because uh, indigenous people have historically, you know, owned land collectively. Um, and there's a sense that privatization uh, did not work out very well for them. It led to the alienation of much of their land. Uh, and the the question of privatization has always been, in interesting ways, sort of tied up with um, Georgia's policy. Uh, Dawes, who proposes the you know the Dawes Act that privatizes land, he you know he visits indigenous land and he says this is the Henry George system. <laughs> um, indigenous people, uh, in their arguments against privatization, sometimes reference Henry George. Uh, I think precisely because they want to. Uh, indicate to white America, hey, maybe this is, idea isn't working out too well for you. <laughs> yeah, look what your own people are saying about this. Um, you know, in, in, internally in you know indigenous publications, they often reference the same ideas of land value taxation. You know, the 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 chief of the Cherokee is arguing for land value taxation at the same time that you know on the same day that Henry George is being elected or running for mayor in New York. Uh, 
Uh, but he doesn't explicitly reference George. And I think that, you know, internally, th there's an inclination not to say, hey, we're getting these ideas for collective ownership from white people because we've had this forever. <laughs> the, the, this is an idea that sort of runs parallel with indigenous um, ideas. Um, and it's something that um, tribal governments are um, are engaging with um, to sort of try to secure traditional ways of living. Fascinating. Um, the reach of Georgism. I mean, we've we've only scratched the surface here with the domestic and international. I mean, I think you'll have to read the book to get a little bit deeper into it. But I want to just bring us to the, the present day, because if Georgism had its proponents in its own time, certainly has more people thinking about him nowadays. I think it probably speaks mostly to the millennial and the Gen Z uh, folks that uh, can't afford a home. But uh, George still kind of remains a peripheral figure in public consciousness today. We might talk about some other land value ideas, but Georgism itself uh, is is fairly peripheral. Why why do you think that is? So you know, I, I argue at the end of the book that you have you know uh, the New Deal is also very invested in um, land and natural resource policy, um, and it sees it as a vital axis for economic inequality. Uh, but it goes a very different direction than Henry George in 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 many respects. In that instead of trying to nationalize land, it tries to subsidize private ownership. And uh, the, the liberal state in uh, from the 1930s to the 1960s invests heavily in developing a suburban culture in which it's easier for individuals to uh, purchase their own houses and uh, in which it's easier to leave cities and sort of uh, leave this sort of uh, nexus of inequality that's created by um, scarce space. You know, Henry George talked about this in Progress and Poverty, that, you know, there is this potential, right, that you could take this other trajectory of uh, trying to shore up individual land ownership. But his argument was that eventually you run out of space. <laughs> uh, you, you can only do that for so long. And I think we've maybe finally hit that point uh, where you know, I think most major metropolitan areas are more sprawling than is sustainable, especially with higher uh, um uh, fuel prices. And so you, you, you're seeing a move back towards the cities. You're seeing um, more scarcity in space. Um, and so these issues that um, lost relevance for a long time have suddenly become relevant again. Uh, when I began this book, I just thought that George was a strange figure uh, that was going to uh, uh, illustrate why the Gilded Age was weird. <laughs> Uh, and then as I was writing it, suddenly uh, it became a thing that people were very vitally interested in. And that's because I think the issues that he was writing about have become uh, increasingly important um, over a, a period of years. And so you, you've had, um, you know, interest, increasing interest in um, the issue from especially young uh, urbanites uh, who can't purchase property. Um, in many ways, you know, they're they're uh, the analogs of the people that George was speaking to back in the day. There's a strong, uh, you know, contingent of people in tech who are interested in these ideas who, you know, mirror the knowledge workers and middle-class artisans that um, uh, that were drawn to the movement way back when. Um, so it's, it's funny to see, yeah, the, the, the parallels and the consistency. Um, I don't know where we're, where we're going. <laughs> 
it's hard to say if it, you know this will develop more momentum and um, maybe we'll we'll see it become a less peripheral issue. Um, but it's certainly been brought back to life by changing economic conditions. Well, I will also say that I think that, you know, one difference is that um, um, today a lot of Georgists are economists. I think n- not very many people who are publicly associated with the idea, myself included, are the sort of populist rabble-rousers that George was. I don't I don't know that um, there are many people today who um, can really kind of speak to ethical issues and really draw on people's uh, feelings the way that George did. Yeah, I I think I would argue, too, that economists have changed, perhaps, as well. They're not. um, One of the things that your book points out is that a lot of the economists of his time were quite, um, I I suppose they they, they saw George as not being formally trained, and therefore he couldn't really speak with any authority to these issues, whereas nowadays economists think well, everyone, you know, can speak to the conditions of our political economy, and and uh, and and that, that's a big change. But maybe if we turn the whole "why is George peripheral" on its head, and we think about the vested interests that are opposed to Georgism, you know, I talked about millennials and Gen Z being uh, of that that class. You know, you call them uh, tech tech uh, laborers, but you know that that class of of person has an opposite class in in the the baby boomer generation, which do own a lot of land, especially in the United States. Um, are they the critics? Are, are they the ones that are saying we, we we couldn't have a single tax because it will collapse the economy? It'll ruin property ownership in, in the country. What, what, I mean, is that is that what the critics of Georgism say? Yeah. So, um, you know, at the time, the, the critics were largely farmers. Uh, and, you know, George tried to appeal to farmers. It didn't work very well. Um, and it's a large part of why the movement was often centralized in cities because it, you know, politically it didn't have any uh, reach in rural areas where people actually own land. <laughs> you know, I, I looked at an article in more depth at uh, Vancouver uh, where this idea is realized more so than in many other places. And one of the funny things about the debate over it in the 1930s is that everyone's sort of in agreement as to what's happening. It's just a question of whether or not they like it. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, the critics of land value taxation are saying that my property isn't worth anything. Uh, there's too much built up. Uh, you know, um, rents are too low. I can't turn a profit. But, you know, the, 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 the issue now is that if it has been successful in making property more available, more people have property. <laughs> and there are fewer people who are tenants who have uh, high rents and are particularly concerned about it. Uh, and so the the underlying sort of paradox of um, uh, George's politics, and I think that this is maybe an issue with a lot of social welfare politics, is that if it works, it's no longer an issue that people feel like addressing. Uh, it's just maybe a little bit more of an issue with Georgism than a lot of other issues because you're dealing with a tax that people don't like to pay. <laughs> and so inherently, you're always going to have, you know, uh, pronounced opposition. Uh, but you're not going to necessarily have uh, consistent support if it does what it's supposed to do. Well, if you could, if you could scrap the income tax and bring in a property tax or a land value tax, that might have some appeal for some people today. Uh, certainly the number of taxes that have proliferated, sales tax, and uh, there's, there's talks about you know changing the tax code all the time. 
I think might be worth thinking about Henry George a little bit more in our current context. And look, this is unfair of me. And this is the last question that I'll, I'll pose to you. What do you think? I mean, you've read more about Henry George than most people. Would Georgism work then and now? Certainly to some degree. I mean, there are places in the world where this idea is has kind of been implemented. Um, you know, Hong Kong has nationalized land. Um, a lot of the East Asian tigers have, to various degrees, extensive government ownership or um, land value taxation. Taiwan has land value taxation. Um, Singapore has government uh, government built housing, um, and it's been, you know, it's obviously helped pave the way for very successful economies in those places. It's unlikely uh, that you could have a single tax nowadays. I don't think so. Um, I, I mean, I could be wrong. There are Australian economists who've looked at the issue a little bit more broadly and looked at other types of finite property like domain names, broadband networks, and have done the, the math to show that if you, you could have a tax that just you know, taxed monopoly without income. Um, so, I mean, that that's... I, I can't check those numbers, <laughs> but but it's conceivable. Uh, likely, uh, it's it's a policy that can be pretty successful. I'm not sure it can be uh, can do everything George imagines. Um, I'm not sure that it uh, would necessarily be able to create, for example, the uh, the perfect republic that he imagines would be created, where everyone is an enlightened citizen. <laughs> But it, it is, broadly speaking, um, decent policy. Um, some sort of land value taxation or um, confiscation of resource values is, I think, effective at creating a more efficient economy, an economy that's more equitable, and sort of allowing for, um, for you know, easy ways to fund sort of a social welfare state without, you know, impinging upon enterprise, which is you know, a vital concern nowadays when you have globalization and um, you're always concerned about sort of the detrimental impacts of economic policy on uh, actors and how that will Im uh, impact national sort of performance on an international competition. Yeah, that's that does seem to be the the wild card in all this. I I, I like uh, Tom Johnson's gathering of lawyers and other, you know, people within a sort of city administration to say, disprove that. It almost has like a, a Karl Popper feel to it, where you say, <laughs> the more you, you try and disprove something and you can't, the more true it is. So I, I don't know. For me, I'd like to see a little bit more experimentation, although I I, I am also, uh, uh, you know, cards on the table, not a utopian and not, I wouldn't be <laughs> naive to think that this would change anything. It's fascinating though, Chris, I can't thank you enough for joining the show because um, Henry George is a towering figure. He's one of the most uh, no, well-known people of his time. And he seems to be someone that is uh, relatively forgotten, I suppose, in our own age. So uh, I encourage people to pick up uh, Land and Liberty, Henry George and the Crafting of Modern Liberalism. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.